Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. This week we return to the study of the first seven verses of Genesis. After the flood, God's blessing of Noah and his sons and what he said to them at that time when he blessed them. Would you stand as we read the word of God, please? This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it, and from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. God did not just command man to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, but he assured man that he would provide for him and that he would give him everything he needed. And specifically in verse 2, we read, The fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the sky, with everything that creeps on the ground. And then he says this, And all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. Everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are given. And then verse 3, Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you, as I gave the green plant. So animals are to be our food. You see this. Animals are to be our food. And you see immediately how opposite Scripture and God are from us. It's very hard when you have a smartphone in your wallet to think that you could be wrong. It's very hard when, you know, you can know what's going on intimately halfway around the world instantaneously. You could even have discussions with people to think that you could be stupid. And to think that you could be, when we live in a nation where the laws are multiplied and multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, endless, endless, endless laws, it's very difficult for us to think that we could be lawless. When you're able to look down on other continents as not having the rule of law, it's hard to imagine the United States of America could be lawless. In other words, the reason that we come to church is to worship God, and an integral part of that worship is for us to sit under the preaching of the word. And the reason is we're not a good stake. We're not a porterhouse. We're more like uh, a flank steak bought in Africa. You know, we're terrible meat. We're rough and tough, filled with sinews, no fat, And we require tenderizing. 
And that's one of the principal jobs that we come to church to have done, is to have God turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Does this make sense? And we get weary of this. You know, Jurgen, when he and I were together up in Michigan, he, he loves to eat meat in the U.S. because he says he can't get any decent meat in Europe. And so every night, it, all we have is salad and meat. The meat varies from day to day, but the salad doesn't. And when he buys meat, he'll stick some garlic, cut, make cuts, stick some, and then he'll take it with his hand. He'll just smash the steak. What's he doing? He's tenderizing. And when he tenderizes it, he, do, he does it with his hand. I don't know why. He's German. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Curtis. And uh, so he tenderizes the meat. By the way, which all you people next time, not you, not you, but some of you, sit up front for heaven's sakes. Either that or I'm going to start walking back. <laughs> and you don't want that. <laughs> So he's tenderizing the meat, and that's what scripture does to us when we come into the word. We listen to Habakkuk chapter 1 being read, and it's, it's electric. A lawless time, a lawless people. And then we sit under the preaching of the word, and as the word is preached, our hearts always do one of two things. They either become hard, or they become soft. They never just sit there. We're always in play under the preaching of the word. And it always either makes us have hearts of stone or it has us get hearts of flesh. And so for you to come to church is a confession of faith on your part that you want a heart of flesh. That's the whole reason you come. So if you come and I just tell you what a wonderful person you are and you tell me what a wonderful person I am, it's stupid. You can go into any bar and get that. You can go to an IU basketball game some years and get that. <laughs> you know, there, there's, there's no end of places where they can tell you how wonderful you are. I mean, you could just look at your wife and she'll tell you it. Was that you? Uh. Now, listen, the reason I'm saying this to you is you must understand that it's difficult to preach God's word to you. And the reason is God's word always, always draws us to repentance, to change the way we think, to change the way we live. This is the nature of God. He's holy and we're sinful. And so every time we come into his presence, we are called back to his holiness from the sin that we give ourselves to each week. Old, young, it doesn't make any difference. Black, white, male, female, equal privileged in being called back to God's holiness and his truth. And this week particularly, I mean, you go through these first chapters of Genesis and like I said a few weeks ago, it's hard to imagine anything that's more contrary to everything we're taught, everything we read, it's like, oh Lord, please, would you lighten up? Would you please give us some breathing room? But then we remember the purpose in coming under the word of God is, is not my word a hammer, says God. 
It's a fire. It's a hammer. Why? Because we have hearts of stone and they need to become hearts of flesh, okay? So don't go weary in well-doing. And the well-doing you're doing is sitting under the preaching of the word and always smile at me and thank me. Don't tell me I'm nice or good. I'm not. But thank me. Thank me. Because that helps me do my work faithfully. All right? Now, this week, God blessed Noah and his son, said to them, the fear of you, terror of you, and then everything that creeps on the ground, all fish of the sea, into your hand. They're given. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. God, God, not me, God has commanded us to be carnivores. There is not moral superiority in being a plant-eating animal. Those who stick to plants are not superior. They're inferior. There must be something wrong with them. And that's the opposite of the way we're taught to think. We look at every waiter and waitress that comes to us at the table and we ask a recommendation for food and they say, well, I'm a vegan, I'm a vegetarian. And we just immediately feel that they're inferior and we're superior? No. No. We immediately are taught to think that they're superior because they go without meat. And it's lowlifes, brutal men, the kind of men that would hunt, who eat meat. Okay? This is the way we're all taught to think. And this is wrong. And it's wrong because God gave us meat to eat. God specifically says here that he gives us the animals and the fish to eat. And listen, the amount of pressure that we have to change our laws to man's laws, to get rid of God's laws and to go to man's laws, every minute of every day is intense. And it's in the church. The church is never disconnected from the moralistic legalism of the world. And so even in the church, we have intense pressure brought to bear on people to not eat this and to eat this and to change the diet to that and all this stuff about food. And honestly, pastors are driven crazy by this stuff. I was talking to one of the elders this morning, we remembered. The first thing we had a division about in this church when it was planted in 1996 was what? The first thing was whether we would be a church that was on demand or scheduled in feeding children. And so the elders made a decree to the congregation that there was no better way to do it. You choose and we're not going to fight over it. From the beginning, fight over food. This last week, uh, Dave Crow was meeting with a couple that's not in our, our church, and the woman was petrified about having a child because she was sure that she was going to be condemned for the way that she fed her child by the other women in her church. Bible-believing, Reformed church, and she was in tears talking of her fear to Pastor Carell. This stuff is evil and the reason it's evil is that it displaces the law of God with the unending laws of men 
And you have to realize you're going to live under a law, and you're always making a choice whether you'll live under God's law or man's law. All right? And which one you fear. You're always making choices whether you fear the approval of people or whether you fear God. And there's no place that this is more evident to us than in the way that you eat. You have been given animals by God, and he's told you to eat them. When you eat a dead animal, you are professing your Christian faith. It is not sinful. It's not the kind of thing that, 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 that somebody who doesn't have strength does. It's actually the thing that someone who's very strong does. It is a confession of faith to eat a dead animal. It is a confession of faith to kill an animal to eat it. If you want to establish a case for hunting and fishing, that case is that it removes any doubt from your mind about where that meat comes from. Okay? And so when it comes to gluten, when it comes to sugar, when it comes to meat, God has given us these things as good things. Now, you may be weak. You may be somebody that has Crohn's disease. You may be somebody who's a diabetic. There could be all kinds of reasons that you're weak. But don't use your weakness to oppress those who are under the freedom of Christ. Don't ever act as if your weakness is a strength and other people, if they were godly, would have the same weakness you have. Do you understand? This stuff is evil. There are plenty of laws in Scripture. And we need to focus on the ones that Scripture gives us. Like not gossiping. Like not being bitter, you know? Those could keep you going your whole life if you let them. So don't focus on booster seats and gluten. Okay? If you have a sickness, a problem, that's fine. Live in such a way that your sickness is not exacerbated by your diet. But do you hear when I say it that way, it obviously isn't a spiritual issue. <laughs> right? All right, is everybody, everybody upset with me? Raise your hand. Come on, come on. Come on, be honest. Okay. You, you have your hand up. Anybody else? Yeah, he's angry. Okay. Well, Jenna, you were raising it for Jenna. It wasn't really, yeah. <laughs> okay, all right. Did, did, did I tell you guys that when I was in Africa, we went to the Carnivore restaurant in Nairobi? Unbelievable. So this is a confession of faith. You go in this place and they have this humongous barbecue. It's like as big as from here to the wall, a circle. And there's, it's all hot coals and they have every kind of meat you could ever imagine. You sit down at the table, the whole time you're at the table, men are constantly coming with a big spit of a hunk of meat and they ask you if you want this and this and this and this and this and they just go, psh, 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 you know, ostrich, Pig, antelope, I don't think they had lion, and I don't think anybody bothered with chicken. <laughs> Ostrich is unbelievable. 
every animal has been given to us, every fish for food. Okay? Okay? All right? All right. Now, the principle is this. Man is not to serve animal, but animal is to serve man. Why? Because God made man in his own image. And so in the same way that it would be perverse for a man to submit to a woman, okay, because God is the father and he has put his fatherhood on every man, in the same way it's perverse for human beings, men, to serve animals. Now, I don't mean it's wrong to feed animals. I don't mean it's wrong to have a bird feed. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about flipping things upside down so that there's no need to justify the animal, but there is to justify the man. And this is what is all around us. You know, the, the, the mountain lion that killed a runner in, in, in the foothills outside of Boulder a few years ago? You remember that? And everybody's arguing that that mountain lion should be free to kill you know, and that's in its natural environment. That's what it does in its natural environment. And, and the answer to that is no. It is not natural for an animal to kill a man. It's never natural because God has given animals fear of man. Why? Because God wants to protect the glory of his image in man. Do you see this? And so God has set that boundary up. We didn't set it up because we were selfish or proud. God set it up because he gave us the image of God. And so what scripture says is, if there's ever an ox that has a tendency to gore man, men or women, man, that ox is to be dealt with. At a minimum, you're to pen that ox in. And so it says in scripture, in Deuteronomy, if I remember correctly, No, Exodus. Exodus 21, 28, and 29, it says, If an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall surely be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall go unpunished. If, however, an ox was previously in the habit of goring, and its owner has been warned, yet he does not confine it, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner also shall be put to death. And why? Because animals are not allowed to kill man. And if you have cultivated an animal who kills man, that animal is an extension of you, of your irresponsibility, your cavalier approach to the life of man. And so you die. So the principle is, we have the image of God. Animals don't. Therefore, animals serve us. We don't serve animals. And if animals attack us, those animals have forfeited their life. And if we are precious with an animal that attacks man, and that animal, after we knew the danger it posed to man, goes ahead and kills man, then we forfeit our life. Because why? Because in the image of God he made man. Now, if you keep going in this text, what do you find? Well... And by the way, this does not mean that we are callous towards animals. There's all kinds of scriptures that tell us that it's the wicked who are cruel to animals. And so we're supposed to treat animals very, very well. Not to serve them, 
but to treat them well. All right? This is why it says, if you look at your text, you'll see that it says, after he says he gives us the animals as food, then he says this, only you shall not eat flesh with his life, that is, its blood. And so what we know there is that God is telling us that when we butcher an animal, we're to drain the blood before we eat it. Now, why would that be? Well, there's, there are at least two reasons. Number one, because all through Scripture, the payment of sins is associated with blood. All right? And so in the Old Testament, it's a riot of blood. The worship God commands is a riot of blood. Blood everywhere. All right? That blood points forward to the blood of Jesus, who is the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins are forgiven through his blood. He is the offering that pays for our sin. And so the life is in the blood, says Scripture. And so we are not to be cavalier with blood. We're not to eat it. Blood is sacred. The blood of animals is sacred. The blood of man is sacred. For different reasons, but blood is sacred because the life is in the blood. God cares about the life of animals. All right? And so God says you're not to eat the blood, you're not to drink the blood. But now stop for a second and think. If you're not to eat the blood or drink the blood, can you see how that sets up a modesty pant or a little bit of restraint over death and eating? In other words, there has to be a delay so that you can drain the blood. Do you see how this inculcates in us respect for life? Is there an image that's more disgusting than seeing savages kill an animal and immediately start gnarling into it with the blood dripping down their front? There's no respect for life. And so God says, restraint, you are not to eat the blood, drain the blood. And so now there's a little bit of distance between when you kill the animal and when you eat it. You see this? It's a modesty panel. It's something that, that creates a bit of a safety gap so that we respect the life of animals. So don't ever think that this means we don't respect animals, we don't care for them, we're not merciful to them. That's, that's not true. When, it, when God judges, uh, when God has mercy and forgives Nineveh, you remember how Jonah is so angry about that because he despised Nineveh? And then God says, am I not supposed to have mercy on that city of, what is it, 390,000 people, not to mention the animals. And so God himself says that the forgiveness of Nineveh was not just because of his mercy for the, for the men and women that lived there, but also for the animals. And Jesus himself talked about his eye being on the sparrow. And that's proof, if he knows every sparrow that falls, that's proof that he cares for us, because why? Well, because we're worth more than more than sparrows. Why? Because we have the image of God. Now, do you see how this flips upside down everything that you're taught, every guilt trip that you're under in this world? You go to a restaurant and you eat as a confession of faith and you make sure that you and your wife eat meat. Don't let your wife get all sappy on you. Now, by the way, this is not true of trees. You can go ahead and drink the blood of trees. It's called sugar maple. It's draining right now. Go ahead and cook it down. 
and put it on cornmeal pancakes. All right? It's not an animal. Now, God goes on in what he says. He says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it. In other words, if even animals attack us, God will require their lives. That's something. And from every man, from every man's brother. So first, the animals are not to attack us. He'll put fear of us in the animals. But if they do attack us, he'll require their lives of them for taking our life. And then he says, and I will require your life of any man or any man's brother. Every man's brother, I will require the life of man. And then the principle, and here's the principle. Whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed for in the image of God he made man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God he created man. God's image in us is such that an attack upon us, the shedding of our blood by man is an attack upon God. And consequently, God commands us to shed the blood of man who sheds the blood of man. Now do you see, again, how scripture completely wipes out everything that we think today? Because again, you know, who's morally superior? The meat eater, the carnivore, or the herbivore? Well, obviously, the carnivore is embarrassing, you know. And who's morally superior, the person that's against capital punishment or the person that's for it? Well, obviously the person that's against it. He's evolved, he's progressed, he's, he's civilized, he's sophisticated. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's like, he's superior. And so what, what we had this last week was a release of news on Google News that the Pope met with this group whose reason to exist is to oppose the death penalty, an international group, And he told them that the death penalty is wrong. Now look, we're all used to being able to depend upon the Roman Catholic Church generally with moral issues to come down on the right side. Right? They still don't have woman priests. They say abortion is bad. They say that the unitive and procreative function of the marriage bed should be kept together. There's all kinds of ways the Roman Catholic Church is right. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that that's because the Roman Catholic Church honors Scripture. Don't ever think that. They made it very clear at the time of the Reformation that man's traditions are equal and really superior to the Word of God. And that's why one of the battle cries of the Reformation was sola scriptura. Because again and again, the Reformers would say, this is what Scripture says, and the Roman Catholic Church would say, but this is what our tradition says. And so what is the tradition of the Roman Catholic Church precisely here where we're reading? Well, here is the Roman Catholic Church here where we're reading. Pope Francis this last week said, quote, Nowadays the death penalty is inadmissible. No matter how serious the crime committed, capital punishment does not render justice to the victims, but rather fosters vengeance. For the rule of law, the death penalty represents a failure. For the rule of law, the death penalty 
represents a failure as it obliges the state to kill in the name of justice. Now, look, would it be possible to write a statement that's more absolutely contradictory to Scripture than that statement? It's directly contrary to Scripture. So you think one of two things. You either, well, three maybe. You either think that Pope Francis is a bit touched in the head, right? But we know that's not true. He's a master of, of rhetoric, right? So he's not stupid. Or we think that he doesn't know that this text is in Scripture, that God commanded capital punishment. But we know he knows it's there, right? And so then we, I suppose, could think that everything he does is for the approval of man. But I don't think so. So what on earth is going on here? Well, what's going on here is Roman Catholics don't honor Scripture. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. If you read what he said here and what I just read from God's Word, we have the same Bible, basically, okay, but they have that in the Bible, you have to say he is opposing God's Word because he depends upon tradition. He depends upon the authority of the church. If the church violates Scripture, you choose the church. That's the nature of Roman Catholicism. Don't ever make a mistake of thinking that Roman Catholicism is benign. It's not benign. It is toxic when it comes to what matters in Scripture. It helps us on a whole host of things. Thank God for the Roman Catholics that are down there picketing at the abortuary every week. But don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the Roman Catholic Church honors Scripture. And this is a perfect illustration of the problems they have. He says, going on, Pope Francis, there is discussion in some quarters about the method of killing as if it were possible to find ways of, quote, getting it right, the killing, the capital punishment. But there is no humane way of killing another person. Francis also denounced life imprisonment, calling it, court a sort of covert death penalty because it deprives detainees not only of their freedom, but also of hope, unquote. So Pope Francis says that life imprisonment deprives the inmate of hope. Now remember that, okay? Now, let's go to Archbishop Charles Chaput, who is the Archbishop of uh, Philadelphia. Recently, uh, the governor of Pennsylvania declared a moratorium on capital punishment, appointed a commission to study capital punishment for the state of Pennsylvania, and the governor said, Governor Wolf, he said, we're not going to have any executions until that task force has brought in its findings and they're acted on. Well, this pleased the Roman Catholic Archbishop Chaput, and he says this. He says, killing the guilty does not honor the dead, nor does it ennoble the living. When we take a guilty person's life, we only add to the violence in an already violent culture, and we demean our own dignity in the process. Okay? Now, this is the Roman Catholic Church. So what, what in a culture that, that is drowning in blood, that's our culture, we're not talking about Stalin here, you know, 1.35 million babies every single year. That's not to mention the older people who are killed with increasing uh, 
morphine. It's not the, the newborns who are defective and left to starve to death like here at Bloomington Hospital 25 years ago. We're just talking about the unborn children that are slaughtered every week here in Bloomington, all right? In a culture that's drowning in blood, here's an idea. Let's make there be less consequences, fewer consequences, lower consequences for bloodshed, all right? And so in, this, in the country of Norway, Anders Breivik, remember the man that killed all the teenagers? He killed 77 people, many of them teenagers, in a bombing and shooting rampage in Norway a few years ago. And when he was sentenced, he was unable to conceal, this is from ABC News, he was unable to conceal his happiness. After he was declared sane and sentenced to 21 years. 21 years. That's the maximum sentence allowed under Norwegian law. He detonated a bomb in the country's capital, killing eight people, before taking multiple weapons, including an assault rifle, to a nearby youth summer camp, where he gunned down 69 men and women made in the image of God. And you think about this world that we live in, and you think... If we say sodomy is good, that sodomite marriage is right, if we have no penalties for fornication and no penalties for adultery, if the internet is filled with pornography, if we get rid of the, dead, de the death penalty, capital punishment, and there's not one person here who has any doubt that capital punishment is going to be gone in 20 years, right? I mean, we all know it's coming. What do you think that society is going to be like? Every single time I read the account of a murder, like, you know, where five people from one family out in Missouri or wherever it was, you know what I always think? I always think, do they know they caused that? And you say, well, how, do, how, how did they cause that? Well, they caused it by removing the penalties for adultery. And they caused it by no-fault divorce. In other words, you take the most precious connections between human beings, which is intimacy sexually, and you throw it up in the air, what's going to happen? People are going to kill each other. That's why it's always been a capital crime to violate the marriage bed. Because when you violate the marriage bed, when adultery, when fornication, when all these things are legalized, what happens is that the husband or the wife becomes a sexual predator and the children get angry and the children commit perversion with each other and then you have a divorce that leaves the children bouncing from house to house and the wife uses the children to fight against the husband the husband uses them to fight against the wife. And guess what? The violence rates skyrocket. This is the world we live in. We've sown the wind, we're reaping the whirlwind. And now we're going to get rid of capital punishment. Why? Well, because we can't face that 
the, the unbelievable growth in violence in this country is a function of what? It's a function of us being lawless in our sexual intimacy. This last week, three separate cases in Reformed churches where I'm dealing with pastors who have this sexual crime and this sexual crime and this sexual crime in their church, in their homes. Why? Well, because the Supreme Court declared that pornography is a First Amendment right. And, and those Supreme Just Court justices are responsible for incest and child abuse and child rape by fathers. Come on, people. If we sow the wind, we're going to reap the whirlwind. If you do not control pornography in your home, you are going to have murder in your home. And you say, well, no. I say, okay, it has no consequence. Adultery has no consequences. You say, well, it's not really adultery. I say, okay, you tell your wife that. Listen. God says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he created them. And it is not callous, and it is not cowardly, and it is not cruel to take the life of a human being who has shed the blood of the innocent. Do you understand this? It is mercy. And you say, well, how could it possibly be mercy? I say, because it keeps other people from dying. It suppresses the violent. And so you know what I see as a pastor? What I see is we have lost our ability to grieve over incest, over child molestation, over adultery, and over fornication. We are inured to it. And if you don't know what inured means, that's because you're inured. You don't know the word. You don't even have a vocabulary to process the victimization that you have suffered at the hands of a wicked culture. You don't even have the category to judge your culture. Inured means this. Vice is a monster of such frightful mean, M-I-E-N, countenance. Vice is a monster of such a scary face as to be seen, vice is a monster of such frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. In other words, its face is so scary that you just see it and you go, ah! But seen too oft, seen too often, familiar with its face, this, this vice, we first endure and then pity and then embrace. And when you embrace, you're inured. That's what it means. You don't have the ability of suffering with those who suffer, of mourning with those who mourn. You're not even aware that the reason that woman in your church cannot look in the eyes any other man in the church is because she grew up being raped by her father. You're ignored. And we drive by the abortuary, it doesn't mean squat to us. We're ignored. We mention 
the horrible bloodshed of communism. It was amazing to talk to this Marxist professor. And he goes on and on about how wacko Christians are for being anti-communists at the first part of the 20th century. And so after the class, when nobody, everybody isn't listening to me sort of deal with him, I said, dude, you know, a hundred million victims of communism in the 20th century, at least a hundred million. And he said, well, that was, that was Joe Stalin. I said, it was not. It was Stalin. It was Mao. It was Pol Pot. And he said, well, I'm a Trotskyist. I'm a Trotskyist. In other words, I'm the superior kind of communism that doesn't produce 100 million victims. And now people walk around and they say, well, I'm against capital punishment. I believe in the seamless shroud. But you know that's not the right way to say it, right? You remember Cardinal Bernadine in Chicago. He never referred to it as a seamless shroud. He called it, that's my, my weirdness. He called it what? He called it the seamless garment. Respect for life. You can't be against abortion unless you're also against capital punishment. Listen, people. If you believe in God, you believe God put his image into man. Men and women equally. And therefore, man is categorically different. And therefore, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God he created them. The reason God made that law is so that man would not shed the blood of man. And so it doesn't matter what all the arguments are about whether or not capital punishment is effective. We know it is because scripture said the reason you're to kill somebody who kills another man, an innocent man, is because in the image of God I've created him. And so this is the restraint on killing. If a man kills a man, he's killed. If a nation invades another nation, they're killed. Do you see this? It's because man has the glory of having the image of God. And so, of course, nobody believes in the image of God being in man anymore. Nobody believes that God created man. We believe that God created a tribe of hominids, and he didn't do it anyhow. They just arose out of the muck. And in that situation, yes, we will decide that marital relations are just a biological function. And as Margaret Mead predicted, as she predicted when Alfred Kinsey released his report, you know, Margaret Mead was no Christian, but she knew people. She said, look, you release this information about sexuality into the public. And she said, an awful lot of our morality depends upon people not knowing what other people do in the privacy of their bedroom. She said, it's going to get to the point where men are confused as whether or not they have sex with people or with animals. It was 65, about 65 years ago she said that. And so we say, no, no, information is good. So we, we, we say yes to Alfred Kinsey. And then we say yes to birth control, Margaret Mead, you know. and uh, Not Margaret Mead, uh, Margaret Sanger. And, and then we say yes to two children and, and the wife working. And then we say yes to no-fault divorce. We say yes to fornication. We say yes to adultery. 
And then we say yes to abortion. And then we say yes to ending capital punishment. And and then we ask our pastors we ask our pastors to give themselves to pastoral care. So yesterday I'm writing up a statement. You don't know what I do on Saturday. Yesterday I'm writing up a statement for a father to take to a district attorney, or not a district attorney, to a prosecutor, of explaining why they want to bring in a young man who's going to confess to a sexual crime. And that's just me. That's not Jody. That's not David. And then we wonder, why do we have so many pastors And did you realize we spend our lives dealing with incest and child molestation and murder? But we won't elect representatives who make these things crimes again. And you guys are all reading on the internet all these stories about, you know, how, well, you know, the church should be accepting of sinners, you know. And, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin, but love the sinner. And so... You know, you've got this PCA dude who left the PCA so he could have women elders, and now he just announced that he's going to have homosexually uh, active people in his congregation able to come to the Lord's table. I, I, listen, I guarantee in, in, in somewhere between 5 and 15 years, this is going to be the case in every evangelical church in this, in this city. Okay? It's just going to be. And we will not honor God we will not do it our minds here in this church our minds are enslaved to the culture and we spend all our time during the week reading all this obscene stuff and listening to it and discussing it on Facebook and all this stuff we will not read things that help us we won't do it And then Sunday we want our pastor to give us a helpful thought for the week. And the whole world is giving itself to the most gross sexual sins. And everybody's offing everybody. And somehow we can't see the connections. We just don't get it. We don't get it. I wrote a post this last week, and the post said, look, if the PCA won't discipline a man that says it's all right to have women elders and women pastors, and then that man says it's okay to have homosexual sex and come to the Lord's table, the PCA is responsible. It's not the man who's responsible. The PCA is responsible because they allowed him to choose to go that direction with his congregation. And if you have ministers that can't see the connection between ordaining women as officers in the church, and your children becoming homosexual. Listen, it is the height of stupidity for us to think that we cannot teach the image of God in man, we cannot teach against abortion, we cannot teach against women, pastors and elders, and then we're not responsible for our children growing up to be bisexual and homosexual? 
Where, where do you think it comes from? It comes from husbands who are afraid of their wives. Now you say, well, where did that come from? <laughs> All right, okay. Follow my logic, right? Okay, so animals are supposed to be subordinate to man, right? Right? And so we had a woman in our church who was just consumed with bitterness. And so, not surprisingly, she was single. After the age, a single woman would want to be single. And we talked to her about her bitterness. And then one, one year, she sent out a Christmas card. And the Christmas card was this big picture of her with her dog. And her dog had its face right there. And I was repulsed. Here's an idea. A woman consumed with bitterness can't find a man to love her, but she can find a dog to like her. And so she makes a big moral statement about her being fulfilled with her dog. That's why she sent that out. Trust me. And because I'm a man... You know what I did? I took a huge Sharpie. And I just scrawled it all through that dog. And then I took that picture and I put it up on our refrigerator. And do you think my wife approved? I wanted there to be a living reminder that God has placed his image in man. And that animals are to be eaten. You see your children fighting and you handle it as if it's just a little, you know, it's no big deal, you know? Why do you tolerate fighting between your children and your home? Don't you know that each one of those children bears the image of God? You should never allow your children to fight in your home. Never! So, now I have to end. When I was in seminary, a book came out, and it's a facsimile, so this is just copies of a book published in the 1730s in Boston. And this particular sermon is an execution sermon. So the colonial Americans believed in capital punishment, and they executed people, all right? And what I was going to do was read to you excerpts from three things, all right? First of all, an excerpt of the sermon given on the occasion of a young woman's execution, all right? Now, they didn't give it right there at the scaffold. I told you that before. That's not true. They gave it the Sunday before her execution. And so she sat in the congregation, and the preacher preached about her coming execution, then the second thing is a record of the dialogue between her and her pastor as she walks to the scaffold. And the third thing is the statement that she signs in front of everyone giving the explanation of why she committed the crime she did and her sorrow and a specific confession of that crime. Everybody sees it and then they publish it. Now, do you think this might be helpful? And 
I, can't, I don't have time to read it, but you wouldn't believe how helpful it is, the sermon that he preached. And let me tell you, his sermon was over three times longer than mine this morning. Unbelievable sermon. He preaches to her. He says, repent. Aren't you glad that God didn't snap your life out just like that when you gave yourself to sin? But that he has been merciful and allowed you to live past your sin so that you have time to repent. And then he says, do you think that Jesus can can identify with you and have mercy on you? Don't you realize Jesus himself was executed for crime? But not his own. And then he says, Jesus will receive you. Come to Jesus. And all the people are listening. And this woman's within a couple days of dying. Do you think that's helpful? And, and the fool says that it undercuts the rule of law. And then, the dialogue between her and her pastor, she actually walks to the scaffold in, 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 in the presence of the whole assembly, you know, all the people of the, of the city. And the tender, tender entreaties and the sorrow of the minister. And yet she says, you know what she says in that, and then her confession is very, she says, I wouldn't give up these, these times in between my sentence and now for any of the sin that I had beforehand. She said, it's been so precious to be able to repent. And she said, think of what would have happened if I had never been caught. She said, I could have lived the rest of my life with a hard heart. I wouldn't give this up for anything. Do you think that's helpful? You know what sin she confesses to that she was executed for? You'd never guess in a million years. She was single. She'd fornicated. And instead of going to Planned Parenthood, she waited. And then one day she was reaching up to grab something, and she, she thinks she hurt the baby in her womb. And a couple days later, after a lot of pain, she miscarried a baby at eight months. And when that baby was born, she said, she put it into a container and did not help the baby. And the baby died, and she said she thought it was alive. And they caught her. And they executed her. Now, mothers, don't you think it would be helpful if you ran the risk of being executed for killing your children? Listen, watching the difficulty of Hannah and Lucas's life right now, I want Hannah, my precious daughter, to know that God will hold her accountable for the care of her children because of how difficult Mary Louise is. I said when they were over the other night that it's no mystery to me now why scripture says a woman shall be saved through childbearing. Mothers need to be treated as moral agents because mothers have an unbelievably difficult job. And so now, do I not love my daughter? No. 
I don't want my daughter to go to hell. I don't want my daughter to have on her conscience killing one of her children. I don't even want her to hit one of her children in anger. And I think it would be helpful to have a civil magistrate who said to mothers, if you hit your children in anger, we will arrest you. And if you kill them, we'll execute you. And Hannah's all of a sudden like, well, you know, I'm really bollocked up right now. You know? And I don't know if I can take it. Oh, <laughs> I better take it some more. <laughs> you know? Because she's got the civil magistrate. And isn't the civil magistrate helpful? Come on. I need the civil magistrate. I am a wicked driver. It's so helpful for me to know that there's a policeman watching me. <laughs> you know, I, I think there are a lot of you men that identify with me. Sadly, a lot of you women too, but starting with my wife. <laughs> okay, dear brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters, that's it. That's it. Tender hearts, tender hearts. We come before the word of God and we're so thankful that the word of God reminds us that when this world is passed away, we will be judged by the law of God and not the law of man. And so even though we're surrounded by perverse judges and perverse governors and perverse senators and congressmen and women, perverse professors, perverse preachers on, although I listened, coming to church this morning, I listened to a guy preaching on Jonah, and he was tremendous, and guess what? He wasn't Presbyterian. <laughs> Which, of course, if he's a wonderful preacher, means he was Baptist. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. And he even went after capital punishment. It was wonderful. There wasn't a sophisticated bone in his body. So thank God for him. I don't know who it was. So let's end by singing. Because it's the response to seeing our sin and knowing that God is holy and merciful to us. We sing. What else are you going to do? So come on, musicians, let's sing. <laughs>